At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought balls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. 
Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that the Lord had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray together for a moment? Father, as we gather together this morning around your word, we ask that you might come to us by your Holy Spirit and touch our hearts and our lives. Show us Jesus and draw us nearer to him. In his name we pray. Amen. So I want to take you back a, f a few decades to the late 70s. One of the more striking and memorable and slightly peculiar moments in the history of disco. Boney M. Remember Boney M? Ra Ra Rasputin. Yeah. But 1978, they uh, released a cover version of the song Rivers of Babylon. You remember this? Yeah. By the rivers of Babylon. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, actually. I'm not in the music group, so I've been. But, but you remember where we sat down. Yeah, here we wept when we remembered Zion. Great outfits, great dancing as well. So um, there was a very striking line. They were singing uh, from Psalm 137, which was kind of striking in itself. Uh, Psalm 137 is one of the more challenging and, in many ways, depressing psalms. And uh, so to turn that into a disco hit was just extraordinary. But it had this incredible line in it uh, where it talks about the captors who asked of us a song, and then they memorably uh, sang the line, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Yeah? 
I'm looking to, for those of you watching at home, I'm looking around the church, we're getting about half a dozen nods and everybody else is saying, disco is dead, man, we've moved on. So how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? It's a question that we still wrestle with thousands of years after the book of Psalms was written and uh, decades after Boney M's great hit. We've gone in the course of a couple of generations in this country from being a place where Christianity was culturally normal, where going to church was culturally normal, and where the story of the Bible was very widely known. And so, for example, authors uh, writing novels could assume that you would know about Daniel and about Noah and about the Good Samaritan. We've gone from that in a couple of generations to being a country in which uh, we're now deeply secular and Christianity feels like a fringe activity and going to church is not normal at all. And the Bible for many people is a, a completely closed book. Even the most straightforward uh, and, and most famous stories from the Bible are unknown. So how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we tell our story in this new landscape? In the reading that we just heard, and if you want to uh, find that reading and, and uh, follow along while I'm talking, it's in Acts chapter 14. We've been following through uh, part of the story of Acts, and this chapter, chapter 14, is, is sort of the second half of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. I'm not sure that he would have called it that. I wasn't sure he was aware that there were going to be others and that they were going to be quite so far-reaching, but it's how we think of it. Uh, so Acts chapter 14, Paul was wrestling uh, in that chapter with that same question. How shall we tell the Lord's song in a strange land? Because we find Paul on this first journey beginning to step more and more outside of the world of Judaism with which he was familiar and more and more into the Gentile world where he had to tell that story in a wholly fresh way. You may have noticed at the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of the story, that Paul starts off in Iconium, uh, which is sort of what we would now think of somewhere in central Turkey. And he does what he usually does. He goes to the synagogue and he begins to speak about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus who is the fulfillment of the hopes of the Jewish people and the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus, who is the one who the prophets were pointing towards. Jesus, the one who fulfills the Torah. And so he would read from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and he would explain how Jesus fulfilled this. But after Iconium, he moved on to a place called Lystra, which was a few miles to the southeast of Iconium. A much smaller town, what we would probably think of as a village in our terms these days, in a much smaller town. There was a, certainly a small Jewish population there, but not enough, as far as we're aware, for there to be a synagogue. Excavations of the site have shown no signs of a synagogue whatsoever, and that's consistent with the story that we hear in Acts. So Paul couldn't do what he usually did. He couldn't go to the synagogue and unroll the scrolls of the Scriptures and speak with fellow Jews about the, Jew, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who fulfills the hopes of all Jews. He had to do something else. He was communicating predominantly with Gentiles. He was singing the Lord's song in a strange land. So maybe there's something we can learn from Paul and from what he did. How did he approach this? Well, the first thing that Paul did, if we read the story and we pay careful attention, the first thing that Paul did was not 
to preach, not to speak. He began to, uh, to talk about the, the gospel, we're told, but the very first uh, act that we hear about is a healing. He demonstrates the kingdom of God before he begins exploring what that might mean for people. Jesus, when he preached, he didn't uh, uh, preach the, the kind of gospel messages we sometimes hear today. Here are the four things God wants you to know. He didn't draw little diagrams of chasms with crosses going over them. And some of you will be familiar with this, how we explain the gospel. Jesus began with a very simple message. God's kingdom is near. So turn your life around and embrace it. God's kingdom is near. And when he sent his disciples out, he said to them, preach this message and demonstrate this message. Cure the sick and raise the dead and heal the lepers and make the blind see. And that's something of what we see Paul doing in this passage here. There are times when people need to see the gospel before they can possibly hear it. And so Paul began demonstrating the kingdom before we hear one of his uh, sermons. I remember when I was living out in the States hearing the story about a, a group of Roman Catholic monks who were invited by the, their bishop to go into a really deprived area, a very, very uh, troubled uh, neighborhood where the church had completely lost its foothold. There was a huge amount of poverty. There was crime. There was uh, drug dealing. There were whole areas of the, uh, the city that had become uh, uh, un um, uh, unsafe kind of ghetto areas riddled with gangs and, and so on. And they didn't know what to do. How, to, how could the church address the, the needs of this particular neighborhood? And so these monks were invited to come in and when they arrived in the neighborhood, the first thing they did was identify a patch of wasteland that no one was using. And they went out the first Sunday morning, and they were all they were dressed up. They, all the monks had their habits on, but one of them who was, uh, went in all the, the, the fine vestments and regalia for celebrating a Catholic mass. And I mean as though he was celebrating in the middle of the Vatican. You know, it was all silk and finery and so on. And they set up a table, and they covered it with cloth and set it up like an, like an altar in the middle of the Vatican, candles everywhere, blowing around incense and everything. An absolute spectacle. It was theater. Worship as theater. And in the middle of this wasteland, they celebrated their mass, Catholic mass. And the following Sunday, they went back and did it again. And the following Sunday, they went back and did it again. There, there were no Bible classes. There was no preaching, nothing else. They just went every Sunday in, in all their finery and very publicly worshipped. Of course, after a couple of weeks, people started coming along and hanging around at the edge of the wasteland. What are these guys doing? They're insane. Do they not know what kind of neighborhood this is? Slowly, they would drift closer and closer. They might stop afterwards and talk with one or two of the brothers. Over a period of months, they began to form a community of people who were drawn and said, this is great. Actually, we like this. We want to be a part of this. In all that time, there were no evangelistic sermons. There were no tracts handed out. They just drew them together into a community. And once these folks had learned what it meant to come together as a community and to pray and to worship God, then they began to explain to them and talk to them about the God that they had begun to worship. They demonstrated first, then they talked. I can remember when I was uh, uh, younger, 
and working in a church in West Wales, there were folks who were uh, very concerned because the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were very active knocking on doors around the neighborhood, and the Mormons were very active knocking on doors around the neighborhood, and they said, we should be doing the same thing. And so they kind of got a whole group of people together to go and knock on doors around the neighborhood. They would knock on the doors. Hello, hi, we've come to talk to you about Jesus. Do you read the Bible? Do you want to know about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? And everybody said, no. We're sick of the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're sick of the Mormons, and now we're sick of you, and we don't want to know. One after another, the door shut in their faces. So they stopped, and then somebody said, you know, maybe we're just going about this all wrong. What if we were to, what if we were to try a different approach? What if, we were, uh, what if we were just in some way to go and show these people that we really cared about them, and, and not that we want to scalp them for the Lord? So they started another door-knocking campaign a few minutes later. I was involved in this, and it was great. We would go from street to street, knock on the doors. When people opened the doors, we'd say, Hi, um, we're from St. Anne's Church, and this week we are going to be praying in church on Sunday for your street. Can we pray for you? I mean, not here. Just, is there anything you'd like us to pray for? I would say about two out of every three houses, somebody would say, Oh, I'd be so glad if you would pray for my Uncle Bert, or if you pray for my son, or if you pray for me at work, or if you, one after another after another. And we had agreed beforehand that the response was always going to be, that's wonderful, we'll do that. If you want to join us on Sunday, we'll pray for you, but you don't have to. We're going to pray for you. And then we'd say, thank you very much, and go. Week after week after week, people were going around. You know what happened? People started showing up at church. Because we were praying for them. We demonstrated something before we tried to talk out there. We're desperately keen sometimes to get out there and to talk about Jesus and to explain the gospel, and that's not a bad instinct, but sometimes, just sometimes, the food bank or the drop-in center or the toddler group or the bereavement support group, that sometimes these things need to come first. Sometimes they need to take priority. When he does begin to open his mouth and speak, what Paul does next, I think, is really interesting because of the way that he starts connecting with people's existing spiritual experiences. We've got this sort of strange incident that happens. You remember uh, from the story we heard a minute ago, that whole business about the townspeople running around going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, it's Zeus and Hermes who have come among us. That's how this man who's been lame from birth has suddenly been healed and is dancing around because the gods have come among us with their divine power. It's not such a crazy idea as it sounds. The Roman poet Ovid, uh, a couple of generations before Paul, had told a story in one of his most famous writings, The Metamorphoses, about a village in Phrygia, which is very close to uh, Lystra. And he talked about this village being visited by Zeus and Hermes. They went from door to door, trying to find hospitality. They went, he says, to a thousand houses and were turned away every time, till finally they came across an elderly couple called Borcus and Philemon, who welcomed them. Zeus and Hermes were so angry with the residents of this village that they destroyed all 1,000 homes where they had not been welcomed. But they rewarded Borcus and Philemon for their kindness and their hospitality. You see, the Lystrans are not crazy. They knew this story. They were going to make sure that this didn't happen twice. Two visitors arrive in their village And immediately, there is a divine healing of a man whom they know has been uh, lame from his birth. Of course, Zeus and Hermes are back. 
And so they begin celebrating in their own language, so Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on. And they're about to offer sacrifices before they, the two apostles realize, whoa, 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 guys, hold on. We're not Zeus and Hermes. We're just ordinary people. But on the back of that, Paul sees his opportunity to preach. Now, Paul, if you read his other sermons, as we said, is usually starting from the base of a Jewish community. And so Paul usually begins by quoting the Hebrew scriptures and showing how Jesus is a fulfillment of that. But with the Lystrans, he takes a different approach because now he's speaking to an entirely Gentile crowd, people who worship Zeus and Hermes. And so with the Lystrans, he begins preaching about creation. He begins preaching about God's provision and God's abundance and God's care. He begins preaching about their daily experience of God's blessings. He doesn't mention Moses or the Hebrew scriptures or the prophets once. An entirely different approach that matches their own spiritual experience. If you want to see a really good example of Paul doing this again, uh, if you want to look ahead to Acts chapter 17, you'll see him doing the same thing in Athens when he's addressing a Gentile audience. And he even quotes their Greek religious texts. He applauds their worship, their idolatrous worship. I wonder how comfortable we are when we ask ourselves, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I wonder how comfortable we are with the idea of telling the Lord's story in other people's language and in terms of their experience. Not trying to talk to them about Jesus by bringing them up to speed with the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Greek New Testament, and 2,000 years of Christian theology and church history so that we can lay all the foundations that we have as a church that they can hear our message, but instead getting on their territory and talking their language. And what is the language that people are talking about these days? Typically not about Noah and Daniel and Abraham and Adam and Moses. Typically they're talking about energies and chakras and angels, that's good, but crystals, past lives, mantras, meditation, incense, and some sort of confused mix of Zen, Taoism, a renewed paganism, self-help psychology, and wishful thinking all kind of blobbed together into an icky kind of mass. Mind, body, spirit, go and have a look in a bookstore and you'll see the way that people are talking about their spiritual lives. Little piles of rocks, lakesides where you can sit cross-legged in your yoga pants, tiny little golden Buddhas that you put on the edge of the bath when you light candles. Are we prepared to get involved in that kind of conversation or do we just want to sit on the side and wait until they pick up the Bible, read it from cover to cover so we can have a conversation about it? There's a Scottish theologian called John Drain who a few years ago began going to New Age fairs to see if he could find a way of speaking about the gospel to folks involved in the New Age movement. He eventually ended up setting up a booth at which he did tarot card readings. He'd gone into the history of tarot cards and found out that back in, I don't know, 16th century Italy, they were originally just used as ordinary playing cards, but that they were illustrated with little stories from the, uh, the carnivals and pageants that used to go through the town streets. And all the carnivals and pageants were based around biblical themes because this was a kind of medieval world thing. So he realized that all the symbolic imagery on tarot cards was actually biblical imagery. So he set up a booth, got out a bunch of tarot cards, and did what he called non-predictive readings. I'm not going to tell your future, 
Instead, we'll lay out these cards. You tell me which cards you're drawn to, and we'll have a conversation about the symbolism on these cards. And so people would pull out a card. He'd say, what do you see? They would talk about it, and he would say, that's really interesting, because the background to that card goes back to medieval Italy and then beyond that to the Bible, and here's this story that connects directly with your life. And you know what? People listened. He started speaking their language before he spoke his, and they paid attention. We demonstrate the kingdom. We connect with people by speaking their language. And then finally, Paul says, we had better be ready for a little bit of hardship when we sing the Lord's song in a strange land. There's that line when he uh, finishes his, his sort of missionary journey and he's on his way home. He visits Lystra again and he says to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or as it says in the old King James Bible, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. In some churches, uh, old medieval churches, they used to have uh, rude screens. Not, not rude in the sense of um, vulgar. Uh, rude in the old sense of a cross screen. They would have a, a screen in the middle of the church with a cross on the top. And one of the texts that it was popular to paint under that was this text. Because as you passed from the main body of the church up towards receiving communion, you would go through, uh, you would go underneath the cross and you would be reminded, just as with Christ, it is through tribulations that we enter the kingdom. Everywhere that Paul went, he faced angry mobs and arrest and imprisonment and stoning and death threats. And yeah, in part, that was because Paul could be utterly, utterly tactless. But also because he spoke the truth to people and they didn't always like it. It's worth remembering that everywhere that Paul went, his starting point was that he expected to find receptive souls. He expected to find some people who would respond to the message about Jesus. He managed to found a Jesus community in Lystra. And in fact, uh, one of the members of that community he picked up on a second journey and took with him. And he said later on became like a son to him. That was Timothy. You can read the letters that he wrote to Timothy later on in the New Testament. Paul always assumed the best, that God would be at work, that the Spirit would touch people's lives, that people would respond. He was also always ready for the worst. I wonder sometimes, we're so aware of living in a strange land, that the culture around us is so different from what it was, and that the Christian message is resisted more strongly, that we assume, perhaps, that people don't want to hear about Christ. We, we're so ready for tribulations, we, that's where our starting point is. We, we assume that's what's going to happen. You know that all around us, there are people who are looking for meaning and purpose. They're looking for spiritual depth. They're looking for wisdom. They're looking for help in living well. They are looking for God. We can't let ourselves fall into the kind of mentality that says, all we're ever going to find is opposition that the culture is just against us perpetually. It's not. But there will also always be opposition. There will always be resistance, even in the most friendly and warmly receptive culture. Jesus experienced that. He told us that we would experience it too. Paul demonstrated that. We also experience it. We just don't go looking for it. So how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Well, maybe what we learn from this chapter is this. First of all, show, don't tell. Demonstrate the kingdom. Secondly, don't be afraid to speak other people's language. Talk about their spiritual experience in their words. 
And thirdly, don't go looking for hardship, but do be ready for it. Shall we pray together for a moment? Father, we're so grateful that Jesus coming among us also demonstrated the kingdom, also spoke our language, addressed our concerns, and persisted in the face of opposition to proclaim the good news of the nearness and availability of the kingdom of God. And so we pray that we might walk in his footsteps, that we too might learn how to sing well the Lord's song in this our strange land. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.